Really try to connect each moment so that the sitting meditation and the walking meditation, the coming in and the going out, are all part of our practice. Trying to maintain a certain kind of continuous mindfulness. And then as you come back into your sitting place to right away settle into your meditation posture and reconnect with the breath. This helps us to avoid the kind of drifting, daydreaming mind that can so easily take over. Can we really stay within the form and the structure? Just as a way of practicing and training the mind and body. As you begin each sitting in your practice, it can be helpful to have a kind of ritualized way of approaching your sitting of either intentionally guiding the mind to notice certain things like posture and mood and sounds as we did before. Or you might start your practice with some phrases of loving kindness, if you've worked with that practice, or a prayer, or simply bringing the attention to the breath. Certainly one of the aspects of practice, particularly when we are putting ourselves into a somewhat intensive environment as we have today, is the discomfort we have to deal with. So we experience the first noble truth in a very direct way. When we find the body feeling uncomfortable or sleepy or restless, 
we find ourselves getting impatient or bored, we're judging ourselves, we're doubting the practice. All those petty irritations that come to the surface when we aren't in our normal, comfortable environment, when we're not controlling our situation, when we're away from our routine, thrown into this alien place. We try in our practice to bring a, an openness and a sense of kindness to ourselves, of compassion, understanding that simply spending a little time in silence and doing formal practice is challenging. We're not supposed to get it right. It's okay. If we understand that it has an intrinsic value, we have some faith in the process, and we'll stick it out. See what we can gain, what we can learn. This is step two in the 12 steps. Believing that a power greater than ourselves or that a process, that a practice can help us to heal, to become more sane, to become more peaceful and happy. At times, meditation can seem like one long slog. If we don't have some trust in the value of the process, It can seem like a waste of time. The more we practice, the more trust we develop as we see the benefits here and now. In a moment of letting go, in a moment of calm, in a moment of appreciation 
the beauty of this hillside. Many things can inspire our practice. So we open to them, cultivate them. And for now, just coming back to the breath, into the body, relaxed, awake, open, receptive.
Okay, <clears throat> so um, I'd like to uh, take some time for questions now and just dialogue a little bit about um, really whatever, whatever is up for you. If you came today with any questions or if stuff has come up during the sitting and walking or if uh, anything that I said earlier or during the guided meditations um, triggered any questions. So um, open to whatever. Yes. Um, I was surprised during the walking meditation that um, I had fear when I got closer to people. Mm-hmm. Um, you when you get physically closer to yeah, people during the walk? Same time, at the same time, I was amazed because it felt like it was you're all doing this dance together. Yeah. There was this kind of similar rhythm we got into, unbeknownst to, I mean, it didn't, I, I just seemed to be in that place. But I was really, really, really um, surprised that when I got closer to someone, I had this fear. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Well, I mean, the, to me, the most important <laughs> lesson from that is not about the content, but just seeing that when you start to pay attention carefully, you start to see subtle aspects of mind that appear that you don't realize are happening. And they're probably, yeah, pre- present a lot more than you realize. And this is one of the reasons why we really cultivate mindfulness as a practice and then as a lifestyle. So start to see that. And then, because, yeah, of course, there might be a lot of uh, potential insight and stuff to explore about that. I mean, you know, it can, you don't want to make it into too much of a story, but just to sort of start to pay attention to that uh, can be really powerful. But yeah, just slowing down and putting yourself in this kind of unnatural situation with the intention to watch, uh, really a lot is revealed. Thank you very much for sharing that. Uh, Yeah. Well, uh, uh, certainly uh, balance is something that comes up when you do walking meditation because you start to realize why most animals choose to uh, walk on four legs (laughs) and that there's a certain uh, arrogance in deciding that we would be okay with just two. Uh, Yeah, so, so balance naturally really arises as a as an issue when you start to move slowly and you realize walking is actually just falling forward and catching yourself one step at a time. Um, generally, in terms of a surface, it can, it, generally it's suggested that you walk on a, 
uh, on a flat surface if you can. Uh, so I, I don't I don't try to do walking meditation on a slope, generally. Uh, but it certainly you certainly can, and there are certainly times when you have no choice. Um, but yeah, I mean the the main thing is to stay in the body. So balance is part of the body. As far as stories about that, then you're getting into the more into the mind. So you sort of want to let go of that and just, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting walking up steps mindfully, um, starting to really pay attention to all the muscles that are involved in that movement. It's really uh, quite a, a lesson in physiology to start to pay attention to the body in this way. So, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the term recovery has just become this kind of generic term, like Kleenex or something, yeah. you know? And, um, and I'm just wondering, what, how, do you, how do you see the word recovery? How do you see, yeah. what, what is it we're recovering? Mm. And, uh, you know, when you were talking about the, the subtle states of mind, it made me think, well, maybe it's more uncovering than it is mm-hmm. recovering. Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree that it's become very generic and... Uh, and I fall back on it as a way of, in some ways, avoiding having to get specific. Uh, and, you know, just in terms of language, in AA we can talk about being sober, but in NA, then it's like clean, but usually people, I think in NA, talk about more, more like being in recovery. Um, and that becomes more, when I'm talking to an audience that may be not only those programs, but also eating and sex and you know, codependence and Al-Anon, then uh, that's why I fall back on the more and more generic term that can cover a lot of things. But, it, but a lot of times it feels inadequate. Um, and I don't, um, so, but to address the question of what I think that it means well first of all so that kind of points to what i what i think it means is that it that it's i'm using it to refer to a bunch of different types of uh being sober and clean and you know in in slaa they talk about being sober actually um i'm not sure why but uh so uh it's just kind of an attempt to find a word that applies to not using, not acting on your addiction, I'll say, and not using your substance or acting on your addiction. So in that way, it's not really about the, the state of recovery as it is the state of not doing. <laughs> so that's, prim- first of all, you know, that's kind of the first part of my answer to which isn't answering your question, which I think is a really good one to think about whether it's recovering or uncovering, and, and I think it is both. Yeah, I, you know, I mentioned the childlike. You know, one of the things I've noticed a couple times when I've been at parties where people are drinking, and I don't drink, that, I, that it reminds me of the feeling I had when I was a kid when I didn't drink because I was a kid. I was too young to drink. So I'll just have this kind of flash of like, oh, I'm too young to do that. 
course, I'm, legally I'm not, but maybe emotionally I am, I don't know. Uh, but uh, but um, so, so in a way, for me, there's a, an aspect of recovering my innocence. Mm. You know? and, and it's something that I really treasure. It, it's so interesting that adulthood is real. I mean, you know, hello, adultery, adult. I mean, there's got to be a relationship there, you know. <laughs> that somehow there, you know, there's a lot of things about what we equate with adulthood that have to do with really... Uh, uh, the word corruption comes to mind, you know, with, with, with um, you know, immorality. Uh, I mean, in, you know, to use these very judgmental terms, but, you know, drinking, taking drugs, illicit sex or in, inappropriate sex, just all the things that it's like, oh, now I'm an adult. I can go to Las Vegas and do what you do in Las Vegas. And uh, so for me, getting sober and, there's this feeling of recovering innocence and realizing, wow, I don't want all that stuff, you know? I go to, I go to Vegas sometimes for conferences, and it's, you know, I, you go into a, a casino, and, you know, and the, the ads show people, ha, ha, ha. I, you never see anybody smiling in a casino, you know? <laughs> Even when they win, they don't smile, you know? And, and that's really kind of the, the feeling of it to me. So for me, there's that. Um, and I think what you're saying, uncovering is a beautiful uh, piece of it. And certainly the recovery process is uncovering our addiction and uncovering our underlying the, the energies that run, run us into addiction, turn us, you know, that run our addiction or kind of motivate the addiction. So the, certainly the inventory processes and uncovering and certainly meditation is an uncovering it's a revealing the world in in its beauty and its and the fears and all the the dark and the and the light and it's you know the the glory of mindfulness is this whoa seeing the world in this deeper level you can't do that when the mind is clouded with drugs and alcohol or you know cravings so yeah thanks yeah Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, if, if, or, or what is what you're saying that you know to do a fourth step, I have to really get into my story, but then I'm, uh, you're saying I'm supposed to let go of my story. So, I think this is a, a, for me. Um, so there's a process of in in, in I guess I'm going to be using the word recovery more self-consciously now. Um, <laughs> when I showed up uh, at AA, which is where I got sober, and I, I, I don't in press, radio, and film, I don't say that, but in teaching, I do. Um, <laughs> when I showed up in AA, I thought I had a really interesting story, an alcoholic story. I thought it was pretty cool. The mental hospitals, the you know, getting arrested, the you know, the crazy family, you know, and uh, then I hung around and listened to other people for a while, <laughs> and my story became more and more generic. 
and kind of really not that exciting or interesting. But when I wrote my inventory and, and read it to my sponsor, and he was kind of laughing uh, through a lot of it, laughing in a kind of recognize, you know, I rec- recognizing those things, kind of like, oh yeah, because laughter a lot of times, most of the time laughter is about shared understanding. And when someone laughs at your, uh, I mean, that's at least, I don't know, there's other kinds of jokes, I suppose, but that's kind of what makes, makes us laugh a lot of the time. And so with the, when this, your sponsor is laughing at you reading your inventory, he's not laughing at you, he's laughing with you. It's the shared understanding of that experience. And, and that was when I started, uh, so all of that was seeing that although I have my story, I have a story, it's not so unique. It's not really me. You know, in, the, in the Buddhist sense, of course, it's not really me. So, you know, I wrote a piece recently for, I, I have a blog or column on the Huffington Post. And I, the last piece I wrote last month was about anonymity because there'd been the article in the New York Times a lot of people saw about anonymity. And I, I wanted to write about what I think is important about anonymity, because obviously I don't think that public anonymity is the most important thing. <laughs> Since uh, I'm breaking my anonymity essentially all the time in public. But what I think is important about anonymity is that it's the spiritual foundation. The 12th tradition, not the 11th tradition. The 11th tradition says you're not supposed to you know, reveal that you're a member of a particular program on the level of press, radio, film, or presumably internet. Um, the 12th tradition says that the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, that anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities, which is what, I, what I'm talking about here in terms of story. Uh, it's not my story, it's not my personality that's important. What's important is the, what, what I see, the wisdom that I get. So when I go into an AA meeting, I drop my last name. And I stop being Kevin Griffin, Dharma teacher, author of One Breath at a Time. And I become Kevin Griffin, alcoholic. And there's a story that goes along with that. But it's not me. You know, it's seeing that it's not me, that, that letting go of my specialness, my uniqueness, of my ownership of this set of experiences is f- freeing. So we use our story to let go of our story, to let go of our attachment to our story. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I'm in my uh, fifth month of sobriety. And, Congratulations. Uh, two things that have helped me immensely, tremendously have been uh, practicing with AA, going to meetings regularly, and also using your book as my big Because um, I practiced Buddhism for many years. And um, even if you practice Buddhism for many years, you can still be an alcoholic. Yes, you can.
question is, um, I'm not having a problem with Alcoholics Anonymous. In fact, I'm embracing the program. But I'm having some, I wouldn't say problem, but I'm questioning the whole idea of having a sponsor and how to approach that from uh, the point of view of someone who's practiced Buddhism for a long time and what I should look at or look towards in having mm -hmm. a sponsor. Yeah. And is it necessary to have a sponsor at all? I know mm. people that, I know someone who's been sober for in 20 something years and she says, you don't have to have a sponsor. So, mm -hmm. anyway. Well, yeah. What you, what you, if you want to stay sober, what you have to do is not drink. <laughs> so, all everything else is optional. Um, um, there's something you said that I wanted to respond to, but I'll just respond to the basic question. Well, uh, oh, well, the, people approach me sometimes, and usually by email, people will say, "Where can I find a Buddhist sponsor?" And I don't think it's particularly important to have a Buddhist sponsor. Um, you know, I don't even really know what a Buddhist is in a way, you know, and a, and a Buddhist sponsor gets even more complicated. I think. <laughs> you know, instead of getting down on your knees every morning, do 108 prostrations every morning or something. You know? um, I think that sponsorship is really helpful in early sobriety, and I consider the first 10 years to be early sobriety. Um, and and I, it can be helpful beyond that, certainly. But I think that in the beginning, the, and, and this isn't going to be true for everybody, it really depends upon the condition that you come to the program in. And I, when I say the condition, I mean the, your, really your maturity you're, I, I really didn't know how to make wise decisions when I got sober. Um, I, I didn't really know how to live, how to do things like get a job, um, just show up, deal with uh, loss, with failure, with success. Uh, you know, how to make basic decisions like, should I go back to school? You know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't. I think this might be in one of my books where my, you know, I said to my sponsor, here I was like three years sober. I was 38 years old. I said, if I go back to school, I'm going to be over 40 by the time I graduate. You know, I mean, and and he looked at me and said, yes. And if you don't go back to school, you're also going to be over 40, but you won't have a degree then. You know. <laughs> right. So that, it's just that simple kind of stuff that for me was really, really helpful because I just was not good at making decisions. I didn't understand showing up one day at a time. You know, for me, it was if something doesn't happen when I try to, try to make it happen, then that's because it's just not meant to be, which is not a way to get anything done, you know? <laughs> Because most things, accomplishing most anything worth accomplishing in life takes a lot of failure and takes a lot of just showing up, you know, writing books, for instance, you know, does not happen quickly. One has to really have this long view and not even know. I mean, I've thrown away probably as many pages as I've published. Oh, way more. 
<laughs> forget about all the novels I haven't published. But even just the books I've written, parts of the books that I've thrown away that never got published, you know. And, and, and to be able to have that view, it's like, okay, you know, in, in the past I would have been like, oh, well, I might as well just not bother to try to write a book because it's not working. So uh, th that stuff was really helpful for me. In terms of working the steps, I don't know if I could have worked the fourth step without a sponsor. I, st I didn't have a sponsor for my first year, and I didn't work the fourth step. Um, very difficult. I just didn't know how to manage all that stuff. It's just a lot of stuff having just sort of suggestions and guidance. Um, at a certain point, uh, when I when I was almost 20 years sober, that relationship with that sponsor stopped being really useful. Um, put it, put it uh, in very euphemistic terms. Um, and I haven't gotten another sponsor because I'm just not sure what I would want from a sponsor at this point. Because I actually, uh, this week I was thinking, Geez, June 7th, I know there's something important about that day. Is it somebody's birthday? And then I just realized when you said, I don't know, something you said that actually this was my sobriety anniversary this week. I, I, I was, had been sort of looking forward to it, but I forgot when the day passed. So I just turned 26 years sober, which wasn't, isn't nearly as interesting as 25. So that's one of the reasons I wasn't... Uh, just as turning 61 this year wasn't nearly as exciting as turning 60 last year. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, th I just think, I think sponsors are really helpful, uh, generally, but they're not required. So. And I, I'm sure there are a lot of opinions in this room <laughs> about that. It's one of the things I, I, I uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, certainly, I mean, just, just to say one more thing that, you know, I don't put myself up as an expert on 12-step recovery. I think I've thought through some interest. I think I have some interesting insights about, about it. But what I, my expertise, if I can claim it, is blending Buddhism and recovery. But there's people who can quote the big book much better, much more extensively than I. And, and, and I don't follow a strict... AA or any other 12-step program in terms of some of the things that people consider to be the program. Um, so, so don't take my, what I say as the last word. Yes. Okay, but this is only, this is the last question on sponsorship. I don't want us to... <laughs> into one of these things. People start, you know, this is one of the things. We hear something and then, anyway, it's karma, so go ahead. Good. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to think that that's probably the most important ingredient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I just wanted your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. 
own. I don't think I need to add any thoughts to that. That seems like a great, a great comment. You know? Yeah. And well, and what I'll say in terms of going back to the kind of idea of a Buddhist sponsor. I mean, I, you know, I think as you're saying, I think being present, being compassionate. Um, and engaging you as you, rather than you as generic program person. That's, that's what I think is valuable in the sponsor, as long as they aren't saying you have to believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior or you can't stay sober, you know, um, which people say. Some people say that. Um, but um, other than that, I don't think it, you know, that you have to have a sponsor who shares your exact spiritual or religious beliefs. Or, um, but just that, yeah, they're compassionate. And, and, and as I say, the one thing that I object to with sponsors or anybody in the program is people who just pull out generic you know, responses to problems without actually listening to individuals. Um, you know, I give the example of someone recently saying to me, um, I don't see you at this meeting very often. And I said, well, that's because I don't come to this meeting very often. And, <laughs> and, uh, and this is somebody who goes to that meeting all the time. And, I said, and he said, well, you must go to other meetings. I said, no, not really. I don't go to a lot of meetings. Oh, well, you need to go to more meetings. <laughs> well, the, and my response, my internal response was, well, screw you, and I'm not going to go to this meeting anymore. And I was like, wow, that's what happens to people. And that's how people get alienated from the program. And fortunately, I have enough experience to realize, well, that was just my thought, and that's not helpful, and it would be much better for me to show up at the meeting than, and to act out my resentment by showing up rather than by not showing up. You know? <laughs> but that type of comment without knowing who you're talking to, I mean, not that I'm like somebody special who doesn't need meetings, but, you know, yeah, I've been sober for pretty long. I think, I hope that I can make wise decisions. Not that I always do, but generally I think I'm, my program is okay. And, uh, and, and people can really say this stuff that's off the wall that even though it, at one time it might be helpful, like, oh, have you written an inventory or you need to call your sponsor or you should go to more meetings, whatever. Things that are all good advice generally in a particular moment might actually create harm. So if you're not present, <laughs> with the person, but you're just like, you know, drawing from your little you know, list of generic responses, you can do harm. So, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned earlier the gentleman that talked about fear, and I heard you say it's not so much about content. Is the idea of mindfulness that as, as I become more aware of a fear or an anger that that it the the, the constant being being more aware and more aware helps to dissipate it. Um, I know, and I'm not going to talk about my sponsorship. <laughs> I know that my sponsor, we, what we work on is we don't we look at the problem, but we don't nurture it and we don't stay long on it. Yeah. We just acknowledge it and move forward. You know, it's not about denying it. And I was just thinking um, and really enjoying this idea of, of mindfulness today and 12-step. 
to this question. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's great. That's, um, how exactly did you put it? You said the... It, it, it's not really, I, what I heard you say was it wasn't really about the content yeah. as much as the importance. So, yeah. to... so, so, there's, so there's two, I'm sorry. No, no, no. So we start with content because that's what we have. That's our, that's our material to work with. And, and we start with the personal, because that's what we have. Again, it's the material we have to work with. And then we move towards the universal. So the ultimate, so uh, the, um, we, so we're trying to see ultimately the Dharma principles, shall we say, the truth of suffering, the truth of impermanence, the truth of not-self, kind of moving towards wisdom. And um, typically, when we first start to practice, there's a lot of self-examination and um, self-analysis that happens. And we're in a culture that does that, and because of our psychological uh, uh, framework that our culture puts out, and the therapeutic <laughs> you know, kind of uh, culture that we have, it's natural that we're going to do a lot of that kind of self-analysis and, oh, what does this fear mean and why is that happening and is it related to my relationship with my family and all that stuff, which can be helpful. It can be revealing. Um, and it's kind of the inventory process of meditation. And it's not the end point. We, we keep... There's both uh, a long arc of kind of moving from that into the more universal dharmic view. And there's also the short arc of each, any moment, just pulling back and going, oh, what's the dharma in this? So, oh, there's fear. Okay, that's suffering. Okay, breathe, release. Oh, it's gone. Okay, that's impermanence. Okay, breathe, come back. Um, so there's, yeah, there's this way in which we're, we're working with that material, but we're not getting too stuck in it, just as you're describing with your sponsor. Um, it's, it's an, again, a middle way, because we don't want to go, oh yeah, that's there, and turn away too quickly before we see it clearly. Suffering has to be understood. We have to touch it. We have to be touched by it, allow it to really penetrate us without being overwhelmed by it. I mean, that's a dance, and it's one that's very challenging, and we will stumble as many times as we don't. You know, many t you know you'll be caught up in all your stuff, you know, and it happens on retreats. You can be in the middle of a long retreat and just start to get obsessed with something and just overwhelmed with something. And then finally you snap out of it. Wow, what was that about? And, uh, so we're in and out of playing with the material, but seeing that there is there is content and there is process and, and that there is, there is um, the me story and then there is the dharma, the truth of things. Mm -hmm. So one of the uh, practices that I have in my daily practice at the end of my morning sitting, I take the three refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha, dharma, and sangha. And when I say to myself, I take refuge in the dharma, I will typically say, may I see all experiences through the lens of truth today, or through the lens of dharma. 
that's just a reminder to take that Dharma view of the things that seem so personal. Yeah, yeah, Jeremy. Yeah. Um, I, and the fact that it reminds me of my DUI test. Well, uh huh. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. I, I tend to sit and wonder, and I've been doing this a long time, it's funny how often this comes up even as I'm here. Am I doing this right? Mm. Oh, I'm going to fall over. How embarrassing. I hope nobody noticed. Um, this is a self-conscious thing that was like. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I just start to laugh. Yeah. And I just, I let myself go with that happiness. And then I'm just, just strong, back lifting my breath, washing my feet. Yeah. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah, that's great. And it's been a process. Yeah. Because it helps me connect with my activities in my meditation. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, uh, it's, it's so important to, to make our movements, our activities, as you say, part of our practice so that because if we're going to take this stuff out to the world that one of the best ways to do it is to connect it into our movement um, I would say you know another way of responding to that moment of of embarrassment is to just go inside and feel it feel it as energy in the body so that it's not but this is just I mean, this is the sort of essence of practice is to feel what's happening and to be, be with what's happening. And, and that it's, an, it's another way of taking you out of the story that you're telling yourself and just feel, oh, this is what that feels like. Um, and to not, not let it lead on. But connecting also, yeah, with that, that uh, um, innocence of it is a lovely, lovely way to work with it. Thank you. Yeah, uh, you know, you had your hand up a minute ago. You still have that same question? I do. I kind of just keep wondering whether I should bring it up, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. When you said uh, a new, you're, you're new uh, in the first 10 years, it just. <laughs> Sorry. See, only people who have been sober for a long time say that. You know, it's, just, <laughs> it's just one of the things that we do to lord it over you. That's all. And not really welcoming them, and um, it, it, I don't know. To me, it just defines these differences. I'm yeah. the new, I've had years of sobriety and relapsed, and the yeah. incredible judgment I felt that you now know nothing again. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that you haven't grown. Like I think this gentleman behind us who has all these years of spiritual Buddhism, but will be treated as if he knows nothing. Uh, yeah, because yeah. He's coming into recovery. Right, right. And uh, so I just. What do you mean by that? When you, yeah. When you're a so, so what? What I what I mean, what I really mean is that um, the all the all the kind of foundation. And if I if I really think back about my process of recovery, I think it was probably at about six years that I started to feel like there was really this foundation that I kind of knew how to 
live now. But it took me several years. It definitely was not like 30 days or six months or a year. That there was, there was, it was years <laughs> before I kind of felt like, okay, I kind of can do this. You know, not just I can stay sober, but I can kind of live. And I think I'm gonna, my life is really going to start to work. Um, so, it, so I just threw out 10 years, because could have said five, you know. <laughs> But it, 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 I think it is important to sort of see that it's years so that we don't get ahead of ourselves and you know, think, oh, yeah, I've got two years now, I'm, I'm done, or whatever. But I think, I think what you're saying is a really good point and, and something worth uh, just talking about a little bit. That you know, When somebody gets sober when they're 19, they're still just 19. You know? They don't have any life experience. They still have to grow up. And if they're... If they're if they're you know, 29 and they've got 10 years sober, they're not the same as somebody who's 50 who's got, who just got 10 years sober. You know, they've got a lot less life experience and they still have to do a lot of growing up. And it's the same as you're saying. I mean, I got sober when I was 35 and I'd been practicing Buddhist meditation for five or six years at that point. I'd been on a three-month retreat. I, I, I had a lot, you know, a lot together uh, on, on certain, in a certain area in, in uh, the meditation area, and I was early on helping other people in recovery to learn meditation, and I was really kind of motivating people to do that early on. So, uh, yeah, we don't come in as blank slates, and I, and I agree with you that I find that uh, really um, well, there's some good words for this, but patronizing kind of when uh, the, when people treat you. And as you say, I mean, you've relapsed, you've been through the 12 steps, and then you have a relapse, and maybe you had a glass of wine. Some people, you know, have a glass of wine, and then then uh, that's it. And, and it's like, oh, well, you're a newcomer now. It's, yeah, there's, a, there's a, a, a way in which that's just kind of more of that kind of uh, black and white thinking, which is helpful, I don't think. Which is, and, and maybe just separateness. There's yes, this, there's that's that, right, right. Yeah, it's very dualistic. Yeah, yeah. You. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for calling me on that. Yeah. I have a question I've always wondered about. Um, you know, like, why after you get to say you're sober for 15, 30 years, uh, you go into an A and you say, uh, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. Uh-huh. You know, it's a it's a another question that comes up, particularly in Buddhist circles, because you know, if you're really kind of well, I mean, the the Buddhist principle of not self and letting go of identity and not clinging to roles and uh, that well, shouldn't I kind of let go of that? And the the counter argument is that um, it's a skillful means. You know, uh, that it's not that. I believe that the whole of my identity is that I'm an alcoholic, but rather that by reminding myself of my, t- my past problem and my potential for future problem, if I drink again, I'm just staying, uh, it's helping me to protect me from, from relapse. Um, I do think that it's important to hold it in that kind of a way, in some kind of a way that is not the whole of your identity and that is not uh, a sense of 
uh, permanent uh, wound or permanent uh, failure or some you know shortcoming that that oh I'm an alcoholic no I, you know as as um, this one woman who was in the used to go to the home group that I belonged to in Venice when I got sober, Venice Beach, California, not Italy, unfortunately. Uh, she used to say, uh, or she told a story about a newcomer coming in going, oh, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic or not. And, she's, and she said, oh, be one, it's fun. <laughs> so, oh, I think that's a good attitude to have about it, you know. But, you know, many people in meetings will say, I'm a drunk, or I, I've chosen, I, I have the desire to not drink, or whatever. You know, you don't have to say, have to say that. Um, I, think, I think it's worth considering what it means to you. So we're just about, it's just about lunchtime, and I want to, uh, there's one hand up there that looks really Hi, um, craving. Oh. You're going to bring that up right before lunch? I have no secrets, believe me. Haven't you read my books? No. Now, yeah, I think it's too much for me to take that on because that's a Dharma talk in itself. And it's certainly what my second book is about, is about higher power. And, but we can talk about it this afternoon when we have a little bit more time. If it, if it had been a shorter question, I'd address it. But, um, um, there's a question over here, Ken. Uh, okay. Go to a lot of different programs. Don't go. No, I said go to a lot. Go to all the programs you need. I've gone to lots. No, but I mean, I don't know what's your what's your well, concern. I the biggest fire out first, and then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's pretty rare to meet an alcoholic or a drug addict who doesn't have issues around sex around controlling other people, maybe around food, uh, find themselves uh, getting compulsive and obsessive about many different things. Currently, my problem is golf. And, uh, you know, I I have a hard time preparing for my Dharma talk because I'm thinking about my swing, you know, and it's just ridiculous, but it's obsession. It's just what we do. So, yeah, I mean, starting with the thing that's going to kill you uh, is a good idea. because you're going to have a hard time dealing with the other things if you're dead. Um, but, uh, you know, my sponsor told me um, not to go to uh, adult children of alcoholics until I was two years sober, I mean, just because he didn't think I should try to deal with those kind of issues right away. I thought that was wise advice. Uh, you know, I, again, that's just generic advice. I wouldn't give it to everybody necessarily. But, um, yeah, to kind of take it, uh, one issue at a time for a while, uh, but many people 
attend, uh, like, for instance, maybe two programs regularly, like Al-Anon and AA or uh, CODA and NA or something like that. So uh, it's, it's very helpful. I mean, you can, you can deal with multiple issues in one program. I, I think that the 12 steps apply, since they are applied to all these different things, and if you have a kind of open-minded and a skillful experienced sponsor, they might guide you through a lot of the process uh, addictions, uh, even within your program. And you can, a lot of programs, a lot of meetings, people share about stuff that's process, even if it's an AA meeting. Um, so, but, but I don't think it's particularly, one thing where I think people get uncomfortable is if you start to share about sex addiction in a, in a AA or an NA meeting, or I don't know, I haven't gone to, I've only been to one OA, but kind of, you know, then people kind of like, eh, maybe not right here, you know, because sometimes guys will start to talk about stuff. You're like, dude, no. <laughs> you know, you know. Just like take it to, or go to a men's meeting, but not a mixed meeting. No. So that's good closing here. For, so, so let's get, <laughs> so we're going to have some announcements uh, before lunch, and uh, Kathy will give you the, the rundown on the specifics. Is Kathy in here, or is she? So maybe, oh, you're going to grab her for me? That's great, thanks. Um, but I'll just give my announcements. One thing is that I have a few other uh, events happening in Northern California this summer, and there are flyers out there for them. The highlight being the retreat at Esalen in July. So if you can afford it, I don't know how much it costs, but I presume it's pretty expensive. I should, I should find out so I can... Like, um, but it's really one of the most beautiful places, I guess, in the world. If you haven't been there, you know what Big Sur is like. And uh, it's right on the cliffs there. And then the hot tubs that come out, you know, the natural hot springs on, on the cliffs overlooking the ocean. It's just one of the most beautiful and magical places. So I don't even know if I'll teach anything. We'll just, just hang out. What, why bother? They do have a bar there. So that'll be a practice. Uh, but, but uh, come to Esalen, it's July 8th to the 10th. And then I'm, I'm doing a day long in Sacramento, the 17th. And um, what's the other one? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.